What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. Hello, I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, the show that discusses children, books, and learning. Today, we'll delve into the world of science, picture books, and guided reading. First, we'll talk with Dwayne Merrill, a professor of science here at BYU, about how important science is for children. After that, we'll call Jan Birkins and chat about what guided reading actually is. Then we'll learn what the process of illustrating a picture book is like from artist and illustrator Julie Olson. Lastly, we'll go around the librarian's table to talk with librarians from Utah about books, children, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll hear Margaret Neville review a few picture books and hear about the favorite books of children from Provost Elementary. But before all that, let's take a little glimpse at my world. At a recent conference I attended, I learned about an interesting technique that is being applied in many classrooms. This technique is called sketch noting. While some may call it doodling, the technique is really so much more than that. In its purest form, it's about using visual representations to structure and convey the information one is gleaning from a speaker or a text. While experimenting with the technique at the conference, we learned different ways to visually represent what we were hearing. This included using things like shapes or frames to box off important information. We also learned how to use different font styles and sizes to put emphasis on information. We also learned that simple icons or emojis were great ways to convey information. We learned that any way to put information into a visual form helped us to process and convey what we had learned. I know that some of you out there may be a little skeptical of this technique, thinking that doodling is just a way to waste time or a way to stave off boredom. But it's so much more than that. Cognitive psychologists like Alan Pavio have suggested that humans use both verbal and image codes to store items in memory. He also contends that the more codes someone has for a memory, the more likely one is to remember that information. This means that using both textual and picture codes to record information we learn is a more powerful way of getting that information stored than using only one code. I can attest to the truth of this, as just after the conference, I was asked to participate in eight hours of speeches that I needed to learn from and remember. During that whole eight hours, I used sketchnoting to record the information the speakers were giving to me. And even today, I remember the majority of what is said. And even if I don't remember, a quick look at my notes gives me more information about what was said and how I felt about it than any other type of notes I've taken. So I can personally say just how wonderful sketchnoting can be. And many teachers at my conference said the same thing as they talked about how they use the technique to help kids take notes on the books they read or what they talk about in class. So if you are looking for a powerful way to build a child's memory, take this tip from Rachel's World and check out the power of sketchnoting. Rachel's World. 
In a standard education, there are several subjects that are crucial to the development of literacy in our children: language arts, music, mathematics, art, and science. But what do you do when your child isn't interested in one of those subjects? Let's focus on science with our first guest, Dwayne Merrill, a professor here at BYU. He's had experience as a high school science teacher, and he teaches geology, physics, and chemistry, and specializes in secondary physical science teacher preparation. Welcome to the studio, Dwayne. Thank you. I'm very excited to pick your brain and help our listening audience understand a little bit more about why science is so important, particularly in our children's lives. So let's start with the question: Why is science so important for children? Well, first of all, I think they're all scientists. Probably the biggest thing to me is that as students learn to recognize patterns and how predictable certain systems are, that that helps them to engage and and move through life. Is science is kind of about solving problems, and those patterns and rec- recognition of patterns is very important. That's one thing I don't think people realize very directly. How much about science is a problem-solving aspect, and it is very much a problem-solving aspect that can be used in all aspects of life, and not necessarily just scientific inquiry. So, developing those kinds of literacies that help us to not only do science but also live our lives and read books and all of those types of things. All develops into this for me, at least in my vision. So, how do you look at it? How do you see science as as kind of a more overarching view of how we help children develop all kinds of different literacies? Well, I think that almost all literacies are involved in science. I mean, it's a way that we try to understand the universe and and where we live and how we interact in that in that realm that we live in. To know that the sun's going to come up every morning is pretty amazing, you know. And then to realize why it comes up every morning, and to gradually learn that it didn't move, the Earth rotated, and those kinds of things. I think they're all things that make you know. And to realize there's only like a hundred different atoms, a few more than that, make up everything that we know. A very small number of them. Knowing that you know the energy that our lives and our world functions on all come from the sun, and all have been stored in different ways, I think those energies are so important to us now. As we talk about different things, that it's important that kids, especially children, are allowed to explore those things and to make them part of their lives. The impact of a good science literacy is that you realize that it's pretty simple, and that little things just. Occur over and over, Dwayne. You you talk about this with such beautiful wonder and awe, and I I love the way that you you talk about how glorious all of this is. It really is wonderful to me to see that kind of engagement. And I know you've been a teacher, and you're working with people becoming teachers here at BYU. So tell us a little bit about maybe some of your experiences where you have seen that kind of engagement. With children and science, and why is that kind of deep engagement important to you, particularly as a teacher? Well, you know, if if science class becomes what's the definition of Newton's first law, and they say, well, every object will remain in motion unless it's acted on by an outside force, and then they won't wear their seatbelts when they go home at night, I don't think we've taught them anything. 
And so I, to me, the science is much deeper than a bunch of definitions of terms. It's actually you have to get a feel for what's happening and how it works. I worked with a group of students when I was teaching high school. We made a mine probe working in coal mine country to measure how fast the roof and the floor were collapsing as we moved coal from out of those ceilings and floors. And all three of those students went on and got degrees in science or engineering. And I'm not saying they wouldn't have had we not done something like that. But one of them became a mine engineer, one of them became a, a concrete engineer, one became a civil engineer, one became a pharmacist. And I look back on it and go, that wasn't the definition of Newton's first law. It was they got a feeling for what science was for solving a problem. That is a wonderful role for a teacher to play in a student's life to help kind of open their eyes to the wonder that comes from learning and exploring something more deeply. And then just helping them learn how that communicates with the world and communicates in different ways, particularly these kinds of projects, which are very hands-on and very direct, I think, help kids learn all kinds of communication skills that they can take forward. So it's wonderful when we see these students moving towards science, but I, I would think, at least from my perspective, that it would also move them towards other things. So how do you see how do you see that progression that they take that even if they don't go into science that they're learning really important life skills that allow them to develop and grow as individuals. So really as a old high school teacher my philosophy has always been that our K through 12 schools should be preparing our kids for anything that they want to do. And if they don't gain good literacy skills in almost every field it starts saying what they're going to do instead of saying you can do anything. And so I've always looked at science education as it's for every student in the school, not just a select few, and that every student has the opportunity to learn physics or learn chemistry or learn geology and also just to know that they can do whatever they want when they leave high school was a big deal to me, that they had good math skills, they had good science skills, and they had good English skills, and they had good history skills, and you say, okay, I like this, I can do it, instead of saying, this is the only path I can follow. I can't agree more. I think that that's really what education should be. It should be broadening instead of focusing on something very specific. And that attitude, I, I really appreciate that that you bring students to that level because they really, what we want them to do is communicate with the world and engage with the world and be good democratic citizens and know how to vote when there's mining issues or other things that we that we might need to understand. So tell us a few tips that you might give to a parent or some other concerned adult who might be wanting to help their students engage a little more with these wonders of science. I guess my first tip would be hope that we have science teachers who communicate well that they communicate the love and desire of science. But if I were a parent, and I was, I have four children, uh, curiosity is so important. You know, I I remember my oldest son, I swear the only thing he ever said was, how come, how come, how come? And I actually bought a book called How Come later on to help him because he everything he saw, he wanted to know how come. And I think that we sometimes make our students not do that anymore. Our own children, I think, sometimes we get so tired of answering it, we say, you know, nowadays, here's the phone, watch the phone. I don't want to answer that question, you know. And so I think 
my biggest tip would be let them be the scientists that they were born to be. You know, let them be creative and let them be curious and let them tear something apart that doesn't work and look inside of it and and let them think as they do that. Let them solve problems. But if we just tell them what they're supposed to know, I think that takes that natural curiosity that almost all of us are born with completely out of us. Such a, a beautiful way to state it because I do think there's oftentimes that, you know, we are natural inclinations to things, but then because of the way our lives go or because of the experiences we have, we don't have that inclination. And, you know, I know a lot of people, myself included, I say, you know, oh, I'm not good at science. But that's not really true. It's just that I haven't had the opportunity to be good at science. So are there opportunities out there that you would suggest to parents other than really great teachers, which we hope are there, that that might help engage in some of these aspects of natural curiosity? I'm worried that I'm a dinosaur now because there's so many good things out there on the Internet and and engineering programs you can do. I, I saw one from my grandkids the other day where you could get a thing sent to every month with a new engineering activity, which is basically a hands-on science activity. But, you know, I, I grew up in uh, Bernal, Utah, out in dinosaur country, and I think every field trip I went on as an elementary student was the Dinosaur National Monument. And I didn't realize how neat of a place I lived. And now when I take my children back there and my grandchildren back there, because I don't live there and I show them, they're like, you lived here? You got to see these kinds of things? So I think as a parent, I would I would be a little bit careful to plan the things I did with my children that would allow them to open their minds to all sorts of things and science and and STEM fields, engineering fields, part of that, where they can actually, you know, go to the Exploratorium in San Francisco or visit Thanksgiving Points Curiosity Museum or those kinds of things, as well as just go to the Natural History Museum in your community and get an idea of how old things really are. So those are the things I would say they're just the easy tips. Perfect tips. Thank you so much, Dwayne, for opening our eyes to the joys of science and helping us maybe a little bit to think differently about how we raise some curious kids. Thanks again. You're welcome. I'm so glad you were able to be on the show today, Dwayne. Dwayne Merrill is a professor of science here at BYU, and we've just been talking about how important science is for our children. Next, we'll join Margaret Neville for our story time segment. She's a lover of books who works at the King's English Bookshop up in Salt Lake City. Today, she'll be reviewing some wonderful picture books. How about the Fan Brothers, Ocean Meets Sky? They got a lot of critical attention for Night Gardener, a beautiful book, and they've done the same thing with the new one. I'm opening it up as I talk about it. It starts with pretty simple uh, pictures of a little guy that lives by the ocean. And as we progress through the book, we find out that Finn really, really wants to be on the water. And of course, it's in a, his imagination and his dreams that take him there. And then we see what the Fan Brothers do best, and that is illustrate their imagination. It is a book where every page is an invitation to sit there and look at the details and wonder where the story's going to go next. For people that love the ocean, it's a, it's a treat. For people that just like a book that takes you somewhere, it's an even more impressive piece of work. It's beautiful. Now, a book that's not quite as new as the first Her Right Foot by Dave Eggers. 
This is basically a point of view book. Eggers, somebody pointed out to him that the Statue of Liberty's right foot is up. And he realized that she's moving. She's not just standing there welcoming the people off of ships from other places. She's on the move. And what is she on the move for? She's on the move to take the message that human beings deserve to be respected. Human beings deserve to have a chance to be the best they can be, regardless of gender, religion. It is such a terrific book. And it all starts with such a great idea. Her right foot, the Statue of Liberty, is on the move. A couple of um, other pieces of nonfiction in picture book format. How the Cookie Crumbled, uh, written and illustrated by Gilbert Ford. This is, it's got a caveat in the subtitle, the true and not so true stories of the invention of the chocolate chip cookie. Who doesn't like a chocolate chip cookie? This book has been a pleasure to have around. We were out, we're been talking about lately about having a contest to see who makes the best chocolate chip cookies. So this is believed to be the story of how the first chocolate chip cookies came to be. And there are several ways that the story is told and I'll let the, if you choose to go get this book and read it, you'll figure it out. But every origin story counts. And in this case, there's several. You can do all sorts of things with chocolate chip cookies, but mostly we like to eat them. In, in kids' book world, there's so many ways of writing about nonfiction, and authors are always looking for a hook. And National Geographic just recently published this book called Dog Days of History, The Incredible Story of Our Best Friends. The author's name is Sarah Albee. And Albee does a really phenomenal job at looking at all these historical points through the dogs that were present and what happened to them. Um, the first seeing eye dogs were um, trained in Germany and in other parts of Europe. And the first American to get a seeing eye dog, his name was Morris Frank. And Frank must have been an extremely brave man. He actually took himself to France all by himself to get a seeing eye dog. And it turned out to be a phenomenally powerful thing. And of course, dogs, service dogs have become an, a very visible part of our community. Um, so this is a book with these kinds of moments. I uh, actually picked this book up and I just, I could sit here and read this right now. When given the proper tools, children can succeed in many different fields. One of the first tools given to children really is the ability to read. Reading opens up new opportunities and challenges our kids. However, the ability needs to grow as the child grows. This is why guided reading, our next topic, is so important. We're on the phone today with Jan Birkins, an author, educator, and advocate for guided reading. Welcome, Jan. Hi, Rachel. Jan, one of the concepts I hear a lot about as a teacher, and I'm sure you understand, is this concept that we call guided reading. And I think this is an important concept for a lot of people to understand because it's really fundamental to a lot of the work we do in schools. So I'd like to know from your perspective, what does the term guided reading really mean to you? Guided reading refers to 
small group instruction. So this is when a teacher pulls a group of kids together to work with them in a small group, usually six or fewer children. Um, and they work from the same text. And the text is typically at a level that is mostly accessible to the kids without support from the teacher. Um, and there will be some tricky places in the text that the kids will have to figure out. So there has to be some problem solving, but very, very manageable, not at all frustrating for the kids. Um, it's technically referred to as instructional reading level. Um, although the work of guided reading is largely on the kids. So instructional reading level can be kind of a misnomer because it makes it sound like there's a lot of explicit teaching going on during guided reading. And from my perspective and that of my co-author, Melody Croft, on preventing misguided reading and my co-author, Kim Yaris, on who's doing the work, is that, you know, the work in guided reading is mostly that of the kids. I think that's really important to understand, and particularly when we're looking at this as parents or other people that are observing the work going on in schools, that this really, particularly with guided reading, is about the kids doing the work and allowing Mm -hmm. them to kind of stretch their wings and do what they can without a whole lot of intervention on the part of the teacher. So why? what is the purpose behind this, of letting the kids do this work on their own? Is there is there an intent and purpose that we're trying to achieve so that students really can do more later on or so that they can practice? What What is the intent and purpose of these kinds Absolutely. of things? Absolutely. Guided reading fits into a, a bigger framework of instruction. Guided reading was never intended to just be in isolation. And it is a piece um, along what we refer to as the gradual release of responsibility. So it happens as a part of read aloud and shared reading and independent reading. And those kind of go in order. And so guided reading is where we want to see that what we've taught kids in read aloud and shared reading is beginning to transfer because we have our eyes set on their independence and proficiency in text. And so because the next step in the gradual release is independence, if we're really heavy-handed in guided reading, then we don't have an opportunity to see if our work is transferring. And in fact, if if we're having to do a lot of the work in guided reading, it usually means that we've not taught very efficiently in the other instructional context or that the text is too difficult for the students. I think that's an interesting kind of shift of perspectives, because I think sometimes Mm -hmm. when we think of schooling, we think of the teacher standing up there directing everything and the students are the sponges absorbing everything. (laughs) But this this new paradigm that that you advocate for so greatly in your works is that fact that it really is more about the student and them doing the work. And particularly when it comes to reading, having this kind of gradual release of responsibilities so they can get to a higher level of reading. Why do you think putting that responsibility on the child and allowing the child to do that is is a way we need to look at these kinds of educational processes? What, what's so important about that? You know, um, the educational researcher David Sousa says the brain that does the work is the brain that does the learning. And we really, that's probably our most frequently used quote because 
if we're doing all the work, then we as the educators are actually robbing the kids of the opportunity to learn. I think that I do not know who came up with this metaphor. It was not us, but the idea of riding a bicycle um, and learning to ride a bicycle and and not actually having the opportunity to be on the bicycle <laughs> where we're actually listening to someone explain it, watching someone show us how it works. But that guided reading time is when the kids are actually on the bicycle, metaphorically speaking. And so if we're still like riding around and talking about how a bike works and labeling the parts of a bike and they never get on it, then they don't truly become independent. And that is the goal, I think, in the end, to get our children to be independent readers. So what does that independence look like, particularly when we talk about that concept of instructional reading level? How do do those two things go together, and how do we engage that level as well as the independence to make kind of the perfect storm of of reading instruction? You know, it looks like kids being willing to try something when they get to a tricky spot in a text and, and having strategies, not just knowing strategies, um, reading strategies, but also knowing when to use them. Um, and so if they are reading and they come to a difficult word, then you would expect them not to just stare at the word or look to the teacher for help but to try something. And trying something might be saying the sounds of the beginning letters. It might be rereading the sentence for context to think about a word that makes sense. It might be looking at the pictures. It might be going back to the cover. It it could be any number of things, but, but this is all work that the kids are doing. And so, so often in guided reading, you know, traditionally, um, if a kid gets stuck on a word, we're quick to tell them where to go for a source of information. We say something like, well, sound it out, or look at the picture, or um, does that make sense, as opposed to a more open-ended prompt that really lets them do more work, such as um, what could you try, or what are you going to do next, or, and then once they've figured it out, how did you do that, which, you know, causes them to reflect on those strategies. It's about them having strategies and knowing when to use them and actually applying them. I think we, we do a decent job of explaining strategies, but the, the job of letting kids figure out when to use them and actually be in charge of deciding which strategies to use, we tend to take that work away from kids. And to me, I think that's the fundamental thing we want the kids to do is to learn these strategies because it seems the things you're talking about are critical thinking strategies and processing strategies that also go to things like writing and media literacy and other critical kinds of applications that aren't just reading the words. So do you see that kind of transfer when we're working with these kinds of concepts? Absolutely. And it connects to, you know, the work of Carol Dweck and um, having a growth mindset, this idea that if I get to something difficult, I can try something. And it's difficult because Maybe it's new or um, some intrinsic reason um, that's associated with the work rather than associated with my shortcomings. 
And so we write about this in Reading Wellness in the chapter on mindset and the leaning in and the leaning out, the leaning in, leaning out lesson where, you know, we ask kids to really think about how the stories they tell themselves when they get to something difficult affects their learning. And so, yes, that posture, quote unquote, which is how we talk about it in Reading Wellness, that posture towards difficult things that arise in reading definitely transfers to posture in math work or posture in actually riding a bike or you know, once they get this idea that if I work at something, I can get better at it, you see that carry over. Absolutely. And that really is, you know, social and emotional wellness and being able to be mm-hmm. part of society. It it always amazes me how these basic things that we learn in one realm can come into another. And particularly with reading, I think it's so critical that these skills be learned in this kind of environment so they can be used later on. I so appreciate your insight into all of these issues, Jan. As But as we close our conversation today, what do you think is the one thing that you would like our listeners to remember about our conversation today? What is that one takeaway or one tip that you think would be something that you would hope they would remember? Um, I think it would go back to um, who's doing the work. Um, and just the idea that kids can't do the work if we don't let them. And so in many cases, I think we overcomplicate instruction, particularly reading instruction. And, and if we'll get out of the way a little bit um, and make space for them to, to own some of the work, then, then they make more progress and they have a lot more Um, intrinsic motivation around the work. So basically, they can't do the work if we don't let them. So we've got to make space for them to take charge. Thanks so much, Jan, for all of your insights today. I truly appreciate you coming on and helping us to understand the concepts of guided reading and getting out of our kids' way a little bit. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. It's been a pleasure. The pleasure was all mine, Jan. Jan Birkins is an author and advocate for guided reading, a concept that gives our kids responsibility over their learning, strategies to achieve their goals, and opportunities to grow. So next, let's grow with some of our students at Provost Elementary as our producer, Cole Wissinger, visits with them about their favorite books. I'm so excited to get to talk to the kids of the Provost Elementary School in Provo, Utah, about books. I really love books, and I know you guys are book fans, too. So what are some of your favorites? So I really like um, some books I like. is a series of Sammy Keys and a series of Unfortunate Events because they're books that you can really get lost in and be interested in. Well, I like the Percy Jackson series, Five Kingdoms and Trials of Apollo, also Harry Potter and Unwanted so far. Um, I also like Michael Vey, and I think that's it. I like to read mystery or magic books, fiction. Harry Potter. I like the author, how she like describes it. And how you feel like you're at Hogwarts and not reading about Hogwarts and its storyline. 
Some books I like are the Sisters Grimm series and Percy Jackson because they're very suspenseful and you can you can't really ever put them down. That was some good fiction and fantasy, but what about the true stories? Do you have any favorite non-fiction books that might come to mind? I like like it's interesting here at our school we have a a program where you can do a presentation on something and there's lots of books in our library that are non-fiction so you could do a presentation about a certain animal like a penguin or a famous bridge or mountain or a famous soccer player and so I think books that are about like things that interest people like what they like to do for fun and things like that I think those are fun non-fiction books. What are some of your favorite characters in books? Like, who's, who's your book hero? Um, they're all very different. And in The Sisters Grimm, Sabrina is... She always tries to escape from her foster parents, except for her sister doesn't really agree with her. She tries to stay back, so they have very different personalities in there. Um, in Sammy Keys, I like how she's different than a lot of pe- other people. Like, she likes to skateboard, and she's kind of hardcore, and she's kind of a little bit tougher and has a different personality than most people. Well, in Percy Jackson, that would obviously be Percy, and the Heroes of Olympus with the second series of it. Either Percy or Jason, and then in Michael Vay, Michael, of course, and um, um, in Five Kingdoms, Cole mostly the main characters, and they always um, get most of the adventure. I really like how with books can take you to another place or make you feel, like, I guess, lost. And it can also help with learning. It can be entertaining, and they're just really helpful. Picture books are our children's first view into the world of literacy and are very important for their development. Great picture books are well-written and beautifully illustrated. We're excited to have Julie Olson today in studio. She's an artist and illustrator of picture books. She's the illustrator for the Princess Twins book series by Mona Hodgins and the author and illustrator of Tickle, Tickle, Itch, Twitch. Let's chat a little bit today, Julie, about picture books in general. So why did you start illustrating picture books? Well, that's kind of a long answer to well, a well, short let's go question. The, let's, go, let's go the long answer. I want the okay, long answer. Okay, okay. So when I was little, um, I liked to draw. And I liked to draw more of a story. So I would actually make the characters talk to each other while I was drawing them, even before maybe their heads were finished. They'd be talking to each other. And I had a large family. There were only two other kids on our street. We lived on a dead-end street. So we would play with those two other kids, but it was mostly my six brothers and two sisters that were involved in in the play. Beyond that, as far as connecting it to books... We would create a library out of all of our books. We put the 
and a lot of young kids now don't even know what they are, the cards, and made a card catalog for all of our books and pouches, little envelopes inside the covers of the books. And so making a library of books, um, just enjoying so many books and actually enjoying drawing, I think laid the foundation for me to really want to illustrate books, but I got distracted a little bit in middle school and high school with all the other options there are to choose from. Got into music and computers became big and got kind of interested in that, but really went back to art because that's what I like to do in my free time. I didn't like to practice the musical instruments. I didn't really want to sit in a cubicle staring at a computer screen all day. So I my mom and dad were, were good counselors. And they're like, well, just what do you like to do when you have time to do whatever you want to do? And it really came down to just drawing. That's perfect. That's a great progression to get mm-hmm. there. Walk us through a little bit about what it takes to make a picture book. So just the, the basic steps. I know, again, a, yeah. a short question for a long yeah. answer. <laughs> yeah. So everybody's process is different. And even my process changes sometimes from book to book. But there are some basic things that are definitely more standard that kind of happen. So when I get a picture book offer to do to illustrate a picture book, I'll talk about the illustrating process. I write them as well, but um, the process gets more muddled when I'm writing them. It goes more back and forth and it gets a little bit more, I guess, less structured. Uh, But when I'm illustrating, I will get an offer to illustrate a book and I'll get the manuscript and they say, do you want to illustrate this book? And I read the manuscript, and as I'm reading it, I start to brainstorm and doodle in the margins. And if it's bringing up images in my mind instantly, then I know it's probably a book that I'd be good illustrating. If it's not, if I'm having a hard time on the first read-through even picturing what I would do, then I've learned that I should say no to the job because it's going to be too hard if it's too hard in the beginning. It's a long process, a long six to 12 months of spending time with something if you can't, if you're struggling with it in the beginning. So after I've accepted the job, then I continue kind of with the the brainstorming of ideas and doodling of pictures. But I also have to ask the publisher what the parameters of the job are, the size of the book, if they have any preconceived ideas of what the characters or things specifically have to look like. So I don't have to go back and redo so much or even change the dimensions of my drawings because <laughs> they want a horizontal book, not a vertical one. Who knew? Anyway, I find out those. Then I do some research if it's required. The Little Penguin book that I illustrated required quite a bit of research because they had to look real but not photorealistic. So I'll, I'll do some research, and then I flesh out the characters, the main characters of the book, kind of decide what they're going to be like. I think about their hobbies, their interests, their things that that make them who they are. And even if that doesn't show up in the book, it kind of comes out in the way you draw them and in their mannerisms. Then I do thumbnail sketches, which are tiny little, probably two by one inch squares of sketches for the whole book, and I'll do multiple sketches per page. Then I go from the thumbnail sketches to the full-size sketches. The editor at the publisher doesn't see anything until that stage. So I finish the full-size sketches and I turn those in. And then they make their requests for changes. 
and I will do those changes and get approval, final approval, finally. Then I'll scan in those drawings, and I will sometimes do color comps. Then I print out the drawings on watercolor paper. I have an Epson printer that can print archival ink. And I've been so happy for the invention of that and of computers because in the beginning I'd have to transfer the drawing down and I would lose a lot of the life that I felt like my original sketches had. Also, if I mess up in the painting with watercolor, you can't cover up a mistake and that's the medium I work in now. So if I mess up, then I can print out a new drawing and I don't have to start totally from scratch. Sometimes it feels like it, but... um, I will paint them on watercolor paper, and then I'll scan those paintings back in again and add some digital textures or uh, fix color here and there, do some of those fixes that you can't do in watercolor on the computer, and make those final adjustments and tweaks and add borders or whatever's required. Then I submit them to the publisher, and about six months later, I'll see the book. So that's the process in a quick nutshell. Perfect. I, and I really love that because I think a lot of people don't realize how complex the process is and how much goes into the process. Uh, you mentioned earlier you do write as well. So let's talk a little bit about that, especially conceiving of character. I think you you talked about how you conceive of the character when you're painting, that you look and see what their hobbies are and other kinds of things. And so you know this background story that we may not see as a reader. So how is that process different when you've written the, the text than if you have somebody else conceiving of the character as an author. I think it's a little bit easier when you've written it yourself because the whole thing is taking place in your own mind. When I receive the text, then I get what the author has written. However, sometimes there's little notes that no reader will ever see, specifically for the illustrator, And the editor only will include those from the author if they're pertinent to the plot of the story. Otherwise, it's just completely left to the illustrator's imagination. So often, as an illustrator, I will either add subplot or just totally add something that only... The the author probably would have never even thought of or conceived, which I hope doesn't make the author mad when I do that. But (laughs) I, I will add those things just to make the book a little bit more interesting and a true picture book. Yeah, I like that concept of the true picture book, because really, for me, a true picture book is that that has a really strong interplay between the text and the pictures. And they both tell the same story, but sometimes there's details in the text that aren't in the pictures, and there's details in the pictures that aren't in the text. So how do you balance that? How do you find that good balance between what the text says and what the illustrations say? It's one of my favorite things to do, and it's one of my favorite things about a good picture book, is that interplay. I always tell people that if you can if you can read a picture book to somebody without showing them the pictures and they understand exactly every subplot, everything that happens in the story, then it's not really a picture book. It's a magazine story or whatnot. But that interplay where something's happening in the Tickle Tickle Itch Twitch book I wrote, the mouse in the story is only in the illustrations. It's never mentioned in the words. But he is the main antagonist to the story. He's the one causing the problem the whole way through. And you would never know that if you just read the words. You would just think that this groundhog has some odd itch that's just suddenly appearing on his back for no apparent reason. 
And the illustrations are necessary in that instance to tell the story. And I always try to add something like that, if I can, in a book. Sometimes it's not allowed in informational books or something like that. But some little something that that sets it apart and gives it that extra storyline. Well, and that's an interesting kind of contrast because you do do informational books as well as like fiction. So how is the process a little bit different? Because for me, even in nonfiction, there are characters like your Penguin book. Those are as much characters as, you know, Annie McRae or anybody like that. So how do you, what are the differences between those kind of two genres and how do you approach that? Well, I do a lot more reset, research, as I said, for the informational books. Um, however, I did want to make, in the Little Penguin one, I did want to make the penguin a lovable character. And because without making a character have some childlike qualities, children aren't going to connect with the book. And that's very important for picture books, for children to connect with it. And to so that they do um, in, get engaged and get something out of it. And the Little Penguin, I did things... In, I, I gave him a little tuft of fur on the top of his head that kind of stuck up like a we, we always call them an alfalfa sprout growing up I grew up in the Midwest I don't know what they call them here but just this little tuft of hair that stuck sticks up and no other penguins in the book have it and to set him apart from the other penguins and because penguins kind of all look alike when they're grown up and whatnot. And so this little guy had to have something different. So tiny little things like that I would um, will add to to a character to make them different from someone else. Well, and that's interesting, too, because you said earlier you spend like 12 months, 18 months with some of these books. So just so- do you add some of those things just for you to kind of keep you interested in, in drawing these over and over again? Probably, probably. <laughs> and and to make, yeah, to make my own connection with the book and to make, I guess, give my own stamp on the book. Even I've done a lot of educational market books as well. And to p- try and put a little bit of yourself into it as much as you can without getting, I guess, caught in those instances. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, at the end of it, did you just hate drawing like penguins? You're like, I'm never going to draw another penguin. <laughs> you you want to take a break, but you're pretty... Yeah, I'm glad to see them again when they come out. That's that's wonderful. And you have done, you know, such a wide range of things. Do you prefer a particular kind of story or do you gravitate to some kind of particular context or character or how do you make those decisions when you said like you were you look at the manuscript and you try to decide if that's going to fit my visual perspective? How how do you decide that? Well, I have decided I'm not a funny person. I'm not <laughs> that witty. <laughs> Um, I do love the classic picture book, the classic story arc, and uh, that's kind of how I decide if it if it speaks to me, I'll I'll do it. So, just quickly describe that classic story arc. What do you mean by that? You have a character who has a main problem, and they try to solve that problem, and in the end, they are the ones who figure out how to solve the problem. So, you're very problem oriented and solution oriented. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, much to my husband's chagrin. <laughs> That's that's a wonderful thing. But I, I think there's definitely something to be said, too, for children who want that as well. They they want that kind of problem and solution in their books. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Julie, for visiting with us today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Julie Olson is an artist and illustrator of children's books and really brings her characters to life on the page. Last but not least, I'm going to talk with other librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life around the librarian's table. 
I am really excited about the opportunities, particularly for children and teens, that libraries are offering today. And there's such a diversity of things. There's new technologies. There's new spaces and all kinds of things that we're offering for kids in our libraries today. So tell me a little bit about your perspective on that. How, how do you guys interface with kids and teens in your library? And what kinds of things are you offering them? And how do they interact with those things maybe differently than adults might? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's kids are just saturated with, um, you know, technology um, in a way that I didn't feel like I was, you know, growing so up. So true. Um, and so I think, especially as librarians, you know, we, it's kind of our um, goal, I think, our, our mission to kind of direct, you know, this self-learning. And so it's like um, we've had success at the library by providing a coding and gaming club. And it's like, well, if kids are really into video games, maybe we can get them interested in like coding video games, you know, and learning some skills um, that go toward this. I mean, what job now, you know, would not benefit from a knowledge of, you know, uh, coding, you know, um, there's just so many tools out there and soon, you know, you're really going to have to have those skills. Well, yeah. not soon already. Yeah. You already have to. And I, I like that term you use self-learning because for me, I think that that's kind of a switch that we've had, particularly with technology. But I think within the last like 10 years, you know, it used to be you had to go to school, you had to have an official credential or official certificate, right? But so much of what we do today is this kind of self-taught, yeah. self-learning, you know, self-growth type of things. And I think libraries in particular and all the services and resources resources that they provide are like mega bastions for that kind of process that yeah. you're describing of of being able to learn it on your own and but develop something that's not just, you know, a basic thing but actually has a really high level of quality mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen some uh self-directing teens really take initiative with the video editing software. Uh, sometimes it's it's a little bit overwhelming. Mm. Um, yeah. But we have software that uh, you could start out with the beginner, I mean, iMovie, but we have music uh, editing or uh, software that is a beginner, then there's also an advanced and allows them to really, I, I like Nathan was saying, you know, we're, we're saturated with technology, but I don't think we are as creative as we used to be. We don't, you know, whittle sticks to make (laughs) swords, you know, we don't do the things that that we used to do. Um, But this allows them, even, even a patron who comes and, and learns how to make a keychain, a 3G, 3D object keychain with their name on it. That still is really cool to them. They get really excited because it's something that they made and it's something that they can hold. And uh, we've had some kids come in and do a very basic music program that has all the music loaded and they just can slide the buttons up and down. But it familiarizes them, them with composition and with the techniques that they'll need to to record their music later. Mm-hmm. So – it it's it's been really cool to see them just create these things on their own and take such pleasure in the creation and that i think is key to me that kind of creativity right cuz i think a lot of people look at technology and they don't think creativity they think you know yeah. stem kinds of things yeah. but there's something creative about it definitely oh yeah 
Um, I was reading something the other day that I hadn't really thought about, but so many of the minds that have shaped the way that we live today with our technology, it's like, you know, they were very intelligent and they had, you know, a really strong work ethic and discipline and all these other virtues that we want our kids to have, but they also had a lot of luck. They had access to the tools that they needed. You know, I mean, if, if like Steve Jobs, you know, or had not had access to computers at a very early age, you know, it, it could have been a completely different, you know, world. Um, and it's, it's the same thing. I mean, libraries are here to provide access to the people in our communities to um, – you know, because there's lots of really smart kids out there who might do some amazing things if they have the right tools. And so that's that's what I love about libraries and, and the makerspace. Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's, the, it's that wonderful kind of trifecta, right? It's, it's like you've got access to the things you need and a space and environment to do it in that's safe and, you know – open to everybody and then access to people who will help you or support you or, you know, even if you don't know how to use it, they'll say, I don't know how to use it. Let's figure out how to use it. it Yeah, that's right. I mean, have you had that experience? Absolutely. I'm like, I have no clue how to do this, but we're going to work on it together. Absolutely. (laughs) Every day. And and the the makerspace is self-directed and everyone, you know, is doing it on their own, but we will watch a tutorial together. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. We will figure yeah. out the it answers. Is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think I think that's one of the skills we have as librarians, right? If we don't know how to do it, we at least know how to figure out how to yes. do it, right? right. We have yeah. access to the resources to figure it out. Yeah. We know how to find the resources to figure it out. So that's, that's, right. yeah. that's where our talents lie. Yeah. And those are important <laughs> skills to pass on as well. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, and again, that's that process of self-learning, and it's a process of creativity, right? I think yeah. self-learning just naturally – develops that process of creativity, right? And Yeah. Yeah, and a 10-year-old uh, came in and showed me how to 3D model the basic keychain a few weeks ago. <laughs> I'd never seen this program before. This kid walks in and just shows me, you know, boop, 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 and just does it super fast. I was just – I was blown away. That And that's one of the things I love, particularly working in these spaces with kids and teens, is seeing how much more they bring oh, to the yeah. table than sometimes yeah. we even know or expect. You know, like we see this 10-year-old and we're like, oh, we didn't realize that you were like a genius yeah. at the self-modeling <laughs> stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah. And he taught me just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, here here we are in our middle-aged yeah. kind of area and I'm just like, <laughs> you kids know more about this than I do, Absolutely. which is wonderful because they it can is. teach us and we can teach them. And, and again, that just brings it down to this sense of community too mm-hmm. right it's it's not about kid just kids together or just teens together or just adults together it's about all of us being together and engaging in this really cool really cool stuff yeah. so if you could kind of like envision the future of all of this for kids and teens i mean what yeah. what what might be your you know prognosis your future cast of of where where might you think it goes from here oh man that's a good question I have yeah, no idea. that is a really good <laughs> question. Really good question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's wild because we're trying to provide the software and equipment that is kind of cost prohibitive for people who want to do. You know, a, a kid might see a, a video about mountain biking and be really into mountain biking and want to do his own, but he might not be able to afford a GoPro. He might not be able to afford a video editing suite and afford the computer to do it. And so we're providing that for them so that they can do that. And then I'm not sure where it goes in the future if all of that stuff keeps becoming cheaper. It's like internet access and printers. You know, in the That's 80s, cool. like the library was a place. If the you only place to go. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And now everyone's got them. Um, I'm not sure. 
I'm not wow. sure. Wow. Yeah. You know, I don't Holograms. know. Holograms. Yeah, yeah. No. yeah. Flying. Flying cars. Skateboards. You never know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. know. Yeah. But, you know, I think, it's a, I think it's, a, it's a good possibility that some of these, you know, future technologies that we're not even capable of imagining right now will come about because of, of these types of things. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you. Once again, thanks to Matt and Nathan for coming and talking with me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. We've talked with Dwayne Merrill about the importance of science, and we talked to Jan Birkins about guided reading. We also discovered the process of making picture books with Julie Olson and listened to Margaret Neville and the kids from Provost Elementary talk about their favorite books. If you missed any of today's show or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we're doing here on Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow us on Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Becca Hurley. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to all the worlds that are waiting for next week. Thank you for exploring with us.